And now on to today's program. I am so pleased to introduce Stephanie Katsarillis and Sue Roche. Stephanie is the author of the novella My Xanthi, anthologized nonfiction and Pushcart Prize nominated stories. She is also a lawyer and performing artist who draws on her extended family's Greek, indigenous Peruvian and Asian heritage. During a career on and off Broadway, she wrote songs and scripts produced in New York City. She later contributed to Yale Law Journals and worked with social, social justice organizations, including ILAP. In 2021, she was Patrice, Patrice Krant Fellow in residence at Story Knife's inaugural retreat for women writers in Alaska. And she lives and writes in Portland. Sue Roche is the executive director of Maine's Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, or ILAP. Prior to earning her JD from Northeastern University, she worked in publishing and taught English in Costa Rica. Proficient in Spanish, she has been a presenter at regional and national conferences of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She is the author of Maneuvering Immigration Pitfalls in Family Court, What Family Law Attorneys Should Know in Cases with Non-Citizen Parties. Under her leadership, ILAP has expanded its reach across Maine and annually advocates for and assists over 3,000 asylum seekers refugees and other persons in the immigration system. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to turn it over to Stephanie and Sue to start their conversation. Well, thanks so much, Becca. And I see some familiar faces out there as well. Thanks for joining us today. It's really my pleasure to be here today. And thank you, Stephanie, for asking me to join you in this conversation. You know, our friendship really goes back almost a decade. Um, originally, we were connected through ILAP and our common interests related to immigration, but our friendship has really grown from there. And one thing that's always really impressed me about you is that you have so many different facets. You know, Stephanie, the actress, the lawyer, the nonprofit consultant, the writer, the mother. And I really enjoyed um, seeing how these parts of you connect through storytelling in my Sante. Um, in reading this novella, I also found myself reflecting on how its themes relate to my own career as an immigration lawyer and also to the work of ILAP as an organization that provides legal services to immigrants in Maine. So I think during our conversation today, We'll talk about many of these common themes, uh, law and justice, family, migration and displacement. But beyond the common themes, the stories are always different. You know, this novella is one unique human story and just like every client we see at ILAP has their own unique human story. So before we start our conversation, Stephanie and I both thought that since we're discussing a novella that has a theme of displacement, it's important for us to do a land acknowledgement. So we would like to acknowledge that our virtual gathering today is taking place on the unceded territory of the Wabanaki people. So Stephanie, to start our conversation, can you tell us in your own words what this book is about and maybe read a little bit? Of course. Sue, thank you so much for being my launch buddy. It's really great to be working with you in this capacity. And I just have to say, in case you all can't tell that I'm um, a little bit overwhelmed with how many of you have shown up from so many different places, both in my life and um, actually on the planet. So. Thank you, thank you all. Um, yeah, here we go. Let me uh, start with uh, what Mike Sunthi is about. Um, it is about uh, a Greek immigrant woman who uh, rattles the ethics of the criminal defense lawyer she helped raise in the American Midwest during the mid 20th century. And it's about how decades later, he still loves her deeply despite the grisly secret that uh, she kept from him. So that lawyer 
Nick, is uh, the narrator of this novella. And he is a perfect person to set it up for us today, what, what the thing is about. So I'm gonna read to you, here it is. I'm gonna read to you from the first couple of pages of the novella. And this is Nick the lawyer's voice. Like the Greek grandfather I was afraid of, I'm a patient man with a wicked temper. The upside, being pissed off makes me good at what I do. Death penalty, legal defense. Lawyers like me deploy anger strategically for maximum effect in the courtroom and, uh, all right, occasionally at home, the latter with mixed results. Ask my Korean American wife, Janet. I met Janet when she graduated from UC Riverside and had just started teaching third grade in California. This was about 16 years after I'd graduated UC Riverside myself, balanced a bartending job with courses at Cal Western Law, then signed on at the Riverside Public Defender's Office. Janet knocked my socks off and I got lucky. She married me. Been apologizing ever since for bringing cross-examination home to the dinner table. There's a family disagreement. Right, let's reconstruct the facts over the chicken thighs and kimchi. Then fix a hot laser beam on whoever's guilty of a contradictory statement. Janet's resilient younger memory usually prevails, by the way. And my twin daughters, I married late in life, so Maddie and Tessa are only 17. Unburdened by procedural niceties, they feel free to laugh at me whenever Janet catches me out, which makes me about as effective as a fart in a hurricane. However, when it's a matter of ethics and my kids' safety, we're in a street fight. Then I win, grizzled old dog that I am. Okay, I exaggerate, not that grizzled. At 66, I stay lean and work out so this lawyering life doesn't kill me any earlier than it has to. Actually, that's not true either. I work out because the motor inside my guts idles so hard some days, my RPMs jerk me awake at 4.30 a.m. when restless birds, Maddie says they're starlings, but what do I know, rustle eucalyptus trees outside my bedroom window. I spring up, comb my gray hair long over my bald spot and begin living another day the way I think, which is project calm and avoid bullshit, with the boundless exception of my daughters. Now Tessa is fomenting a crisis of conscience and it's blindsiding me, stoking memories of my Greek childhood nanny, Xanthi, whose packet of old letters sits in my drawer like an unexploded incendiary device. She died years ago in the Peloponnesus, God rest her. Meanwhile, I'm wussing out here, hoping Tessa's geyser of questions goes dormant amid my family's daily, messy, satisfying life. Me, hard ass in denial. Nick Malonis Esquire, sole practitioner, 4129 and a half Main Street, Riverside, California, 30 years, serving clients in the Inland Empire, LA and San Diego. No frills, all facts. And that's Nick. What he's about to do, well, thank you, Jonathan. What he's about to do is to spend all night reading Xanthi's letters because he feels he has to answer his daughter Tessa's questions. 
And among those questions is, Dad, how can you defend those people? So Nick reads all night long. And by dawn, what happens is he decides to hand over Xanthi's letters to his daughter. He gives them to her. And then it's up to the reader to decide what those letters might mean to Tessa and whether or not Xanthi's calloused hands and her love and her laughter were enough to overcome the chasm she experienced between law and justice. And that's the setup. Thanks for that reading, Stephanie, um, for setting this up for us. You know, one of the things I really love about your novella is that as Nick is exploring these deep questions, instead of directly providing the answers, the readers are led to come up with their own conclusions. Good. That was my hope. Thanks. So, Stephanie, can you tell us how did you first come to write My Santi? Right. Well, this is um, aimed at all of you, but also especially at my friend Dalma, who's on the call today. It was voice. It was the voices of the people in my childhood and the sounds and inflections that still remain with me. Um, perhaps because my first language was not English, um, it was Greek. Differentiating vocal sounds and what the meaning and resonance of those sounds was, that effort was really endemic to my childhood and it was very, very powerful for me. I remember dreaming in Greek, I remember thinking that Greek was the language of unconditional love. And I remember the years as a child when I thought it was far, far more beautiful and more resonant than English. You know, then I encountered Shakespeare and all of that changed. Um, but Greek was, Greek was spoken almost exclusively in the, um, in the homes of my grandparents, all four of them. Some had been goat herds, some were illiterate and some had medical doctors in their families. So I also heard different kinds of Greek. Sound became a differentiating element in my life. And um, those people came back um, to haunt me very pleasantly. There's an irony here that my, uh, some of my uh, aunts and uncles who believe me, spoke a lot of Greek themselves, told my parents, don't teach her that first. She'll halt when she speaks, She'll be confused about talking. Well, forget it. I was a chatterbox in every language. They were wrong about that. But um, I'm really grateful that my parents didn't listen, right? Because they gave me this, this fabric of sound on which to build. Now, there's a specific voice that I built this novella on. And uh, in addition to Nick, it's Xanthi herself. She is, she was inspired by a beloved Greek woman who actually did come into my childhood home when I was young. And she helped take care of me and my siblings when our mother was extremely ill with cancer. Um, let's call her Thalia. It isn't her real name. Um, but like many Greek immigrant women, women I knew, she subscribed to an hierarchy of language. She thought some were superior to others. And I'm here to tell you, English was not at the top of her list, okay? She didn't wanna learn English. I remember a day she took a fruit off our, our kitchen table and she said to us, what's the English word for this fruit? And we said, peach, peach. And she said, bits, bits. And she said, oh, po, 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 po. you call that a language? She said to us in Greek, that was it. She thought Greek was but ugly, 
and she wouldn't learn it. So we had to navigate between those sounds and thank God for her because Xanthi grew from her. I fictionalized Xanthi, I elaborated, I gave her a different history, but the cadence of Thalia in my household remained. I wanna emphasize that I fictionalized, this is a work of fiction, None of the crimes or the wrongdoing in it are done by anybody I know. So let me make that super duper clear. Um, this confluence of sounds actually and the fiction allowed me to say some things that were unsaid in my household. And they also allowed me somehow to explore with Xanthi what it means to escape violence and what it means to be protected from that violence as my family was. Thanks, so Stephanie. That's really, um, really interesting. And I think that it, this is really powerful um, that you said that, that writing this novella allowed you to say the things that were unsaid. Yeah. Uh, and this makes me think, um, of think, you know, it's so common with the families we work with at ILAP and those who have fled trauma and violence. Understandably, parents are trying to shelter their children from the painful past um, that they wanna leave behind as they start their new lives here. But these memories really live on, even if they're not discussed. That's right. And to my parents' great credit, they never ever pressured Thalia to tell us more than she was comfortable with. Yeah. And so there, there are a lot of immigration themes that run through my Santi. You know, there's escape, refuge, wanting everything the American dream seems to offer, loving it, resisting it, belonging, not belonging. Is my Santi a personal story? Is it political or is it maybe an allegory? How would you describe it? Well, I really hope it's not an allegory because um, there is no single moral proposition for which this novella is a stand-in. Um, I, to your question, to your point about, is it political, is it personal though? Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, I'll go back to the voices this thing started with. Um, Xanthi's voice is deeply personal, regardless of what she's been through. Um, she carries on at a personal level, um, even in light of the atrocities she experienced during the Greek Civil War. She doesn't care, quite frankly, which side perpetrated those atrocities. Um, she saw Greek women holding their children as they bled to death because somebody had stored munitions in the village, let's say. She didn't care. She had contempt for all political factions. Um, so things are very personal to her. And perhaps the most personal thing about her and the most apolitical thing about her is her capacity to love, which she has preserved regardless and which she communicates in some manner to Nick and his family. You know, I'm gonna talk on the other side of my mouth just for a minute. Um, to say that Nick the lawyer takes sides. He, he doesn't hesitate to go there politically when he needs to because he, um, there is something in him that has prompted him, it's a humanitarian impulse, I think, that prompts him to legally represent the marginalized and even the despised, okay? So he has some strong opinions about that. And in that sense, um, he gets political. So a combination, a mixture of political and personal because after all, Sue, as you probably well know, the political gets really personal when it harms your family, right? 
You know, absolutely. And you know, this is something that really is very central to immigration, political events impacting personal lives, um, lives, you know, causing displacement and changing families for generations to come. And I think that really comes out here in this novella. Yeah, that's right. That's why political atrocities are obscene. It's because they're ultimately very personal and they endure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so there's a lot of questions. Um, Speaking of, of immigration law, there are a lot of questions about law and its relationship or lack thereof to justice that run through Mazanti. And can you talk about you know, where did that come from? Right. Um, the chasm that can exist between law and justice itself, when, by that I mean fairness, what's right, um, is something I mentioned earlier with respect to the main character, Xanti. And of course, where that came from is from the needs and, and uh, realities of my characters, obviously. But I think you're asking me something else. And I think you're asking me, where did it come from, from me as a person and as a writer? And it came from my own family's uh, background in the law. And um, you gotta know that when my mom died, everybody in my family, but me, was a criminal defense lawyer. So <laughs> there I was. And uh, after I left the theater, after 15 years, I became a lawyer too. I had to defend myself at the dinner table. That's why I did that. And uh, I became a civil lawyer. I did some immigration and human rights pro bono, but I was a civil lawyer. Uh, they were not. My family were criminal defense lawyers. And more specifically, there is a person in my family who is a death penalty defense attorney. And knowing him, and knowing the vast variance among his clients really brought home to me that tension that can exist between the law and what's fair or what justice might be. Um, among his clients are people you would not be comfortable around. Among his clients are people who were wrongly convicted and who it took him years. It took this brother I've disclosed to you that it's a brother years to get these people off of death row. So right there is an example of the law being way years behind justice in that case. There were other um, clients who did the crime for sure, but were doing it to protect their children against abuse that was threatening to become lethal. So that law and justice, um, that conflict was really front and center in my family. I saw it in courtrooms when it was a crapshoot, uh, which way a judge was gonna go to, uh, with the evidence that day. And Xanthi as a character knows that down to the ground. She knows the role that Hazard plays in splitting law and justice apart sometimes. So it's my family that this originates with and I am lucky to have returned to the arts, to be able to invoke the human stories behind those things. And um, I'm gonna do a little turnabout here, Sue, on you. Uh, <laughs> this whole discussion has always makes me wonder yet again, why people become lawyers as you and I are. And I'd like to know from you, if you're willing uh, to tell us a little bit about that and what drove you to your current work, what conflicts between law and justice you've seen in the novella, but also in your work at ILAP, if you would. Yeah, those are good questions, Stephanie. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I think I was, I was drawn to a career in law because of my strong 
um, belief that in our society, we really need to have um, to provide justice to everyone. And the way our legal system is set up, those without a lawyer often don't have justice or access to justice. You know, for example, an immigration court, someone who doesn't have a lawyer is five times more likely to lose their case and to get deported. Um, so these are the, the things that really drew me to go to law school um, and then eventually to practice immigration law. Um, and then I think in addition to that, what I've learned is that there's also segments of society who don't have the resources to help change the laws. And then we end up with laws that don't protect them. So I think it's sort of a twofold um, situation. And that's why at ILAP, we focus both on systemic advocacy where we're working to change the flawed immigration system and where there's a lot of <laughs> differences between law and justice for sure. And we're also providing direct representation to those who are currently having to face the, the system that we have. And I think, you know, in the novella, we also, we saw the disconnect between law and justice um, with individuals facing different legal ramifications based on their individual backgrounds and their identities. For example, Josefina, the Mexican mother of five, who um, who's sentenced to eight years in federal prison and is subject to deportation because she misunderstood a voting form. And those are the types of stories we see so often at ILAP and in, in immigration law. Right. Thank you, Sue. Um, that, that story about Josefina in the novella that you cite, by the way, uh, that is not fiction. That was taken directly from New York Times reporting. Um, so it, there are real issues that uh, certainly Nick deals with in the novella. Yeah, I've certainly seen very similar fact patterns play out I bet. in real life. Um, so turning a bit to war and displacement, um, which you seem to distinguish from immigration are both themes in this novella. Um, you know, World War II and the Greek Civil War in particular are part of the background of this book. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, did your family talk much about the Greek Civil War when you were talking, when you were growing up? Yeah, uh, no, I'm saying yes to the question, no to the substance. No, they did not talk about the Greek Civil War much. Uh, actually, almost never. Truth be told, um, obviously we were still kids during the period of time I'm talking about, but uh, with this woman Thalia who lived with us for some years, um, we only heard about her experiences through our mother. There was a silence around these things. Um, our mother was by far the most eloquently Greek fluent person in our family. And so she and Thalia would speak. And one day, um, but we heard about Thalia's experiences only anecdotally, believe me. One day, my mother apparently was spooning out red heart dog food. I don't know if any of you remembers that, but it was moist dog food uh, into the bowl of our, our dog. And uh, Thalia said to her, you, you feed that to your dogs? And my mother said, well, yes, we do. And apparently Thalia said, we survived on that uh, during the war. And apparently Red Heart dog food had washed up on a beach or somehow gotten to her village. Needless to say, my mother never allowed it in the house again out of respect to Thalia. But that's the way I learned about the Greek Civil War. One bit here, one bit there, because, and this is gonna take us into the realm of immigration versus displacement. Our people, uh, my forebears had immigrated to this country. And we, we got in outside, the, or we got in legally, but we didn't have to deal with the 100 Greeks per year quota annually that existed in this country. You should know that before 1965. 
quotas affected lots of people. We were here and we wanted to look forward. We didn't want to look backward. That was the message in my household. So we did not discuss the import of the Greek Civil War on many uh, people in the extended family and elsewhere. Um, so we assimilated, we chased success, and um, my brothers and I have gained enormous privilege from that, really. I mean, the privilege of living in essentially a peaceful country and so on and so forth. Okay, that's the immigration piece of the novella. There's something else you mentioned, which was displacement. And that tells me something that's embedded in Xanthi's experience in this novella. The American dream of immigrating and assimilating has an underbelly, okay? And it's not available to everybody. It's not even the relevant story for everybody. Um, I myself have a beloved son who is both an immigrant to this country and uh, a person of proud indigenous Peruvian heritage. He was born in Peru. So he is both a new American and with respect to the Americas from top to bottom, he is an original American. Those two stories have very different backgrounds, okay? So assimilation in particular, that my family and Nick's family in the novella is after, has an underbelly, as I said, it can embrace, um, it can help you reach success, it can also erase, okay? It can also turn genocidal, to be perfectly blunt. Um, I think of recent events where uh, the corpses of native children have been recovered from institutions that purported to educate those children who had been taken from their families. And instead, they were purported to assimilate these children. That meant obliterating their culture, their language, their traditions, and ultimately their lives. Which leads me to the non-assimilation and non-immigration stories that I want to acknowledge uh, because Xanthi somewhere inside her knows about these things. Maybe not specifically, but about her own displacement. We're talking about the trail of tears in this country. We're talking about the middle passage that brought enslaved forebears of our beloved neighbors here. We're talking about refugee camps across the globe. Such folk did not immigrate here. That wasn't what that was about. They were stolen from their, their land or their land was stolen from them. I think that Xanthi brings lurking into the background of the novella, the reality of the loneliness of human wandering and the loneliness of displacement, which she carries with her. So um, I've told you about how I see uh, the aftermath of the Greek Civil War and so forth, but I'll tell you, it was a result of research. We didn't talk about it, and my characters uh, demanded that I start learning about it, so I did, and um, it makes me wonder, Sue, about the people who are seeking refuge here and now in Maine, whom you deal with on a daily basis, right, from whatever continent, and what their stories might be, and which stories are surrounded in silence, and which ones they will fight to preserve. I just think preserving those stories is so important. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. I think, um, I think you're right. These stories are really important. And we do see some of these stories coming out here in Maine 
Um, for example, there's a lot of young immigrants and refugees who are sharing their own stories through places like the Telling Room. Right. And I think we really gain a better understanding of history when stories are told by the people and the families who are most impacted by events, especially when it comes to war. Absolutely. So, so turning from tragedy and tragedy and loneliness, um, right. what's, what about the role of humor in Mizanthi? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, guys, it's supposed to be fun to read. So, you know, there's uh, some humor in there and it, it kind of defines the characters and humor typically allows you to to fall in love with characters often, not always. And it, it reveals who they are. Uh, so Nick, for example, can certainly be a hard ass attorney, no question about it. But the, uh, the reader gets to meet him when he's at his most vulnerable as kind of a pre-hormonal adolescent with you know, barely an Adam's apple to his name. And uh, he thinks it's just a great idea back in his childhood to pull some stunts with his cousin and climb up the second story and window in their house and leap in Northern Illinois in January off the roof into the snowbank below. Now you see Nick with absolutely no frontal lobes operating whatsoever. And then you get to know him better later on. The humor, by the way, also really helped illuminate, at least for me, it helped me write some of the clashes of um, culture that happened within Nick's family because there were people who spoke English, people who didn't speak English and uh, humor is a way of, of kind of illuminating that and, and showing you who the characters really are. Someone with, with kids in the house, I can relate to the humor of kids. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I, know. I, I thought, you know, I really thought that Nick's humor was central to his character and it really helped the reader connect to his struggles. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because you know, it's not all heavy stuff in there. It's, right. it should be fun to read. Yeah. Gives it more depth. Yeah. And so can you, can you tell us what literary devices um, were most useful to you in telling this story? Yeah, great question. Um, there were two uh, that are, are prime, I'm gonna talk about primarily. Um, Xanthi's letters and heating vents. I will explain. Um, the letters that, uh, of Xanthi's uh, that Nick is reading set up a really useful contrast um, because Nick invokes his own childhood as he's reading these letters, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the clash between his internal reality as a kid and what Xanthi went through helps set up the loss of innocence in the novella. Um, he experiences a loss of innocence. His family certainly does. They think they're living the American dream and in essence, they sort of are. And then they get ambushed by the 1960s and protests, uh, the Vietnam War, the uh, civil rights movement uh, takes away the illusion that the American dream is for everyone. And it, it kind of ambushes the family. Nick gets ambushed and loses some innocence when he hears his own father, overhears his father interrogating some young men in trouble. And um, he loses innocence when he presses Xanthi to tell him what really happened to her. So these two realities, hers and his, that we discover through the letters um, help to, I think, propel the novella forward. And it helps to uh, build tension and brings us toward the end. Um, so the letters in contrast to Nick, one literary device. The second one 
the heating vents in the house really <laughs> just emerged by themselves. Uh, I didn't anticipate that. But this is about writing. And I see Linda Laundra in the, um, by the way, among the people uh, here, Linda and I were, worked together in the theater in New York. So she's gonna know what I'm talking about. It came from the daily minute to minute sensory reality of these characters. They lived in a house with forced hot air. That meant that there were ducts that went up to each room from below. And you could hear things through those ducts. And what you heard in your room depended on which heating vent was coming up to your room. So the characters experienced events and conversations in fragments, depending on where in the house they were. And this led to misunderstandings. It led to humor, thank God, sometimes. And it led to attention and a kind of putting together of a puzzle that allowed us to get to the end of the novella when hopefully some surprises um, some surprises. Um, so that's, those were the two that I used. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. I love that um, use of the heating vents. It's such a really interesting <laughs> uh, device. So on and about page 150, Nick goes into a dream sequence um, about saying goodbye to Santi at the O'Hare airport and she's about to leave for good. Can you talk about why or how this dream sequence appeared? You know, like the heating vents, I didn't expect it, quite frankly. That too was a practical outgrowth of where Nick was physically um, in the story and by physically what his physical condition is, that's what I mean. He'd been up all night reading these letters which were very emotional for him. He'd been up all night uh, experiencing his childhood memories and whether they were correct or not. And he's exhausted. I mean, that's the sensory reality for Nick, he's pooped. And so his, his, um, his wife tells him, you know, take a break, uh, take a nap. And what follows from that logically is he dreams. And in that dream, he is able to connect with Xanthi and her psyche in a way that he never could in real life. In, in waking time. Mm -hmm. He is able to see the children uh, in his dream of, of waiting with her at O'Hare Airport before she leaves. He conjures the children who died in the Greek Civil War. He conjures their wounds. He conjures the angels whom Xanthi claims she sees every day, mm -hmm. when just receding in the background when she wakes up. And so he understands things about her that are deeper than anything he could understand in rational time. And um, that's, that's what this dream is for. It's to allow him to make a spiritual and psychic leap that the linear narrative of the story would not allow him. I didn't know it was coming, but it had to be explored. So that's the answer to that. So as the novella is ending and Nick's journey is deepening, can you read from the end of the book? Well, sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me find my book. We are again. And um, yeah. Okay. Here we are. 
I'm at page 174. Um, not that you have the book in front of you, I get that. Uh, where we are now is Nick is at the end of the story and he has given um, Xanthi's letters to his daughter, Tessa, and he doesn't know how that will be taken. And here he is, um, having found out something about Xanthi that was huge, that he didn't expect, and that he now has to live with. Nick says, I review what I learned last night, things a defense lawyer unearths to make sense of a life, even if he can't quite make sense of justice. All those things hinting if the client has decency and some, no, many don't, at what sorrows led to the courtroom. Xanthi's letters keep me thinking that if I could teach law students justice first and law second, I would. Fat chance. Though mom would have loved it, she'd have jutted out her jaw and said, yes, you should do that. Dad would have grunted as he did when he came home from work to find us watching the Perry Mason crime drama series where all the villains broke down and confessed on the stand. Regardless, I'll continue being deeply metabolically pissed off on behalf of, and all right, sometimes at, the shipwrecked whom I defend with constitutional and procedural zeal, who lift me up. I'll continue in honor of values I want around Janet, Maddie, and Tessa, and I'll hope that in eight years or so, I will never face Tessa opposite me in the courtroom. If I'm not truly grizzled now, I will be then. She might wipe the floor with me. I hope even more fervently, Tessa will be on the side of mothers fearing deportation raids, of young men enslaved by the school to prison pipeline, the flower of youth decomposing in California's prison system, of people whose names she won't betray, even to me. I think she's capable of the belligerent constancy that work requires. If Mike Santhi were alive to see my daughter in action, she would doubtless laugh. Even here in Riverside, even as I looked on from under my gray hair and bald spot, Xanthi would wag her head and with her ancient smile, she'd touch my Tessa's cheek as though she were the most precious thing. I would wait for Xanthi to say, Zastis, Zastis, you call that a language? Thanks so much, Stephanie. I really, I enjoyed so much reading your novella and it's just been a real pleasure having this conversation. Um, and I think that we're gonna turn things to Becca with any Q&A. Yeah. Thank you, Sue. Hi, Becca. Are you there? I'm here, thank you so much. A wonderful, absolutely wonderful conversation. Um, I am going to, we've got a lot of great questions. Um, so um, I am going to start with a couple of questions about um, uh, writing and form specifically. So um, we have a question from Hillary who compliments and says it's such a beautiful riveting book. Um, one of the things that she's curious about is why did you choose the novella form as opposed to a novel or a short story or another genre? Oh, good, good question. Um, actually, I think the form chose me uh, because the, the story really was finished. Um, 
when I ended it. And I asked about that. I asked a, a mentor, you know, just, is this a legitimate form for this story? And he certainly was supportive of that. It's a, the novella form is, is a longstanding tradition. Uh, Heart of Darkness, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Goodbye Columbus, they're all novellas. And um, what it allows you to do, I found, is to move beyond the, the constraint of the short story into a really plot-driven um, narrative, at least in my book. And it allows you to explore uh, characters in a, in a way that um, I don't always see in the short stories that I read, but it doesn't ask you to um, kind of breathe as broadly as a novel. And it doesn't uh, offer all that many opportunities for digression, quite frankly. You've got to get to the point. And um, for whatever the reasons, this, this novella follows in that tradition and um, it, it helped me propel things forward. So that's the answer to that. Wonderful. I, I have to admit from um, a librarian standpoint, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing actually a lot of uh, novellas being published and a lot of them just flying off the off the shelves. Really? People, people really want the shorter the um, the shorter works right now, I think, with the state wow. of the world. So when you can write something that is so short and impactful, it, it really is making a difference for people. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. That's great. Okay. Another question we have is um, uh, when a book is published, it leaves the author's hands and takes on new life in the reader's mind. Did you receive any feedback from readers that surprised you? Ah, yeah, there were, there were two pieces of feedback that surprised me. One of them really shouldn't have, I suppose. I had, I have a friend um, whose grandfather, uh, was um, beaten to death during the Russian Revolution, I'm sorry to say. And his body was disposed of in a well in the village and his wife had to pull him out of there. Um, this friend who himself was born in Russia said he saw ancestral trauma in the novella. And I had never quite framed it that way, but he made me understand that that was operating in these stories and that even the silence around the stories, I said earlier that we didn't talk much about the Greek Civil War, that can, that can have a plus and a minus to it, you know? Things don't get exorcised. Um, and my friend surprised me further by saying he saw Xanthi as heroic in that she was trying to protect the next generation from the trauma that she experienced. So that surprised me a little bit. And, um, yeah, I, get, I think that was uh, the thing that surprised me the most. Great, thank you. We have a lot of folks who are, are very interested in Nick. <laughs> um, oh, okay. <laughs> have, a lot, um, have brought up a lot of questions for folks. Um, so the first one that is Nick-centric, we have uh, from Jeannie. How did Nick come into your consciousness? Is he fashioned after anyone in particular? Oh, sure. There's somebody I know that... that uh, that has many features of Nick, but um, his voice, Jeannie, the, the uh, I'm gonna go back to my comment about voice. It wasn't literally the voice of this person whom I know very well, but there is something about um, the commitment 
of this person in real life that led me to literally start writing the first several pages. And I, that's how he came to me. He had things he wanted to say, and I had to listen and write them down. What helped tremendously, I want to add, is going through a workshop with the Writers Hotel in New York City. And some people, some of my classmates from that are here today. Thank you all for helping me develop this thing. Um, they pushed me on that. And they pushed me on what he was saying and why. So Jeannie, it started with a real person and it started with what he would say in real life about a particular thing that I had in mind. And then my classmates pushed and pushed and pushed to say, how did he know that? Who did he know that from? What is his, what is his home life like? And so on and so forth. So I hope that answers your question built on a real person whose voice absolutely intruded into my life one day and made me write, start writing pages. Wonderful, thank you. Mm -hmm. We have a question from Mark. Uh, in one of the letters, Zanthi observes that, quote, this family is very busy becoming American. Right. That seems a particular task, and it also plays through to Nick's family, creating a, a Greek-Korean-American identity. How important is managing that tension between family roots and the necessity of being able to change identity in order to live? Wow. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Easy question to answer. <laughs> um, you know, it lies at the core of the book. The uh, how important, could you read the end part of that question or get the court reporter to read that back, please? Absolutely. Uh, yep. thank you. <laughs> how important is managing uh, the tension between family roots and the necessity of being able to change identity in order to live? Well, yeah, that's, that's, the, whole, that's the whole ball game. Because if you sacrifice one for the other, I think you've, you're in a corner and it's really, it's really hard to manage. Um, my bias is that too much silence around the family stories leaves you unmoored and not knowing who you are. And I, I'll defer to, I, I think of many of the clients that, that Sue, Sue's organization represents. But one of the great privileges that many of us have, at least in my experience, is that we get to even consider this question of reforming an identity. And I think you need to take advantage of that because don't forget, Nick is pushed to reform his identity, not necessarily ethnically, Mark, but his identity morally and ethically by his daughter. So he knows who he is, he knows who he's been, and she says to him, how can you be who you are? You defend guilty people. And all of his history and all the reasons he does that have to come forward and somehow meld with who he wants to be and who his daughter is asking him he is. He has to answer that question. I think my bias is that at the end of the novella, he starts reformulating that not to abandon what he does, but to pass along to his beloved daughter what the possibilities are 
of self-formulation and of creating your own ethical view of the world, taking the past and passing along values and ethics to the people that you love. So that's the best answer I can give today, Mark. We'll talk about it another time, I'm sure. Definitely one of those questions that I'll keep your wheels spinning for, <laughs> for a bit afterwards. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, looks like uh, we have time for, we've got two more questions here. Um, this question uh, comes from Dalma. Uh, what was the most difficult aspect of writing this book? Ah. Hmm. Dalma, great question. I think there were two. Uh, really difficult points. Dalma is a person who understands about writing to honor the people who came before you because her own brilliant work does that, by the way. Her new book is coming out, Woman of Endurance, and it's just, it's gorgeous. It was hard for me to realize how little I knew about the Greek Civil War and many of the things that had happened to my forebears. And it was enough to make you weep to do that research and say that they lived through this and I have all of this comfort now, it was hard to confront. And it was hard to confront my own ignorance if you wanna know the truth. Um, so that was tough, but I had to do the research. What was equally hard was somehow creating um, a wrongdoing on Xanthi's behalf, something she did that you'll have to read the book to find out what it was. And aligning that with a character I really loved. I really loved her. And I had to find a way to walk her through immense wrongdoing that was done to her and a possible wrongdoing that she did in return. And once you fall in love with a character like that, or it's my experience, um, it's really hard to live through their pain with them, but we had to go there. Absolutely, thank you so much. Um, to wrap things up, um, our last question, will there be another chapter to this story or with some of oh. these characters? And if not, what are you working on now or what will you be working on next? Oh, thank you. Well, uh, I am working on another novel right now. It's called Expiration Date. It's got a fairly dark subject um, that has to do with executions in the United States, um, but it, it uh, ultimately uh, deals with the spiritual resilience of people around that event. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, next for Nick and his family. You know what? I hope so. I think, I think I'm not done with them. And I would like to think that there is uh, at least another book or two that could come out of Mike Santi. And so those of you who tend to hold my feet to the fire, yeah, hold me accountable, you know, and uh, maybe I can start that soon. So thank you for asking. Thank you all so much for attending today. I'm going to pass the mic over to Sue for some wrap-up. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie. And I think this has been a really rich conversation and 
makes me want to go read the novella again. I've read it twice already. And just I think each time and having this conversation with you really brings out even some more depth to it and just really, um, really enjoyed it. Thank you um, to the Portland Public Library for hosting this event. Um, yeah. May I jump in, Sue? I, I yes, please do. Okay. I too wanted to thank the library, Becca. Um, it's wonderful that you, uh, Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance, uh, Gibson, if you're on the line, thank you so much for co-sponsoring this. And thank you, Sue. Thank you, thank you, thank you for, for this exchange. It really means a lot to me. And your presence, and by extension, ILAP, means that there are three fabulous organizations on this call. Uh, the library, ILAP, and Maine Writers and Publishers. I hope your paths cross again. I want to thank also Los Galesburg Press for publishing Mike Santi. Um, it's a young, new, diverse press in California, and they specialize in the novella, uh, Becca, by the way, so you should know that. Um, yay! Uh, I also want to uh, give a heads up and a thanks to Print, a bookstore which is on Congress Street here in Portland. It is carrying copies of Mike Santi. And if you want copies, by the way, links to both um, Los Galesburg Press, where you can get them, and Print a Bookstore are available on my website. So you can, you can go there. Um, I just want to thank everybody who showed up today. Uh, so, so appreciate it. It was wonderful to see your faces and thank you, Becca. Thank you so much. I see um, some wonderful comments coming in through the chat. And so I'll make sure to get that to Stephanie for all of our attendees today. Okay. Um, and thank you all so much. I hope that wherever you're tuning in from, you have a wonderful day and please feel free to join us for uh, future uh, virtual events and perhaps in-person events. Yes, well, <laughs> <laughs> Ma, thank you all. Thank you. Thanks much. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye.